now are very easy to implement and it's very easy to make a monoclonal antibody to hit a number of different targets. I think companies can make the decision to why not try a lot of different possible candidates going to the clinic, shots on goal. And that's really only possible by using a platform approach. Hey, smart biotech scientists. Have you wondered how you can speed up CMC development? Well, if yes, then you are at the right place. So welcome to another episode on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. And today I'm having a conversation with Gene Lee, who is the chief technical officer at Ultrabio, a biotech company based in the Bay Area, focusing on novel first-in-class biologics for autoimmune diseases. And we're going to talk about using platform processes and how and when you should do a developability assessment so that your molecule will make it through process development and eventually into the clinical studies and obviously into market, hopefully. So stay tuned for an exciting conversation with Gene Lee. Are you juggling the complexities of CMC development while trying to enjoy the beauty of biotech? Have you ever wondered if there's a way to simplify bioprocessing? Welcome to the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast, where we're diving headfirst into the very challenges you face. We're breaking it down, demystifying the jargon, and giving you the keys to unlock your full potential. I'm your host, David Brohlman, and I get it. With 15 plus years in the biotech industry, I face the same challenges you do. There's a way to simplify and streamline so you can remove complexity, you can skip trials and errors, deliver without delay your groundbreaking therapy to clinics at market, and still enjoy every single step. Do you want to learn how industry experts and I did it? Grab a cup of coffee and your favorite notebook and pen. Now is the time to take your bioprocessing game to the next level. Let's smarten up biotech. Welcome, Gene, to the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. It's so good to have you on the show today. Yeah, it's great seeing you again, David, after maybe five or six years. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure. Gene, share something that most people don't know about you. Yeah, I think most people who don't know me well, given that I've been in the industry for 25 years, I have a PhD. I went to sort of a hardcore university for my undergraduate studies. They all assume that I'm also a hardcore scientist. But I think people who have worked with me a little bit realize that at heart, really more of an artist. I have an artist's soul. And I think that sort of combination of science and, and art, sort of using both sides of my brain, really is something that, first of all, has served me well, I think, in my career. But it is a bit of a surprise to a lot of people. My dad was a biochemist. He worked at the Rockefeller University in, in New York. But while we were living in New York, my mom worked at the Museum of Modern Art, the MoMA, in New York. She has her master's in graphic design as well. And and growing up, she always encouraged me to sketch things around the house or listen to music, learn how to play instruments. She took me to operas. And I think this kind of upbringing really has helped me to appreciate yeah, the other side of the world, not just the science. 
Yeah, my approach to science has always been to be more creative, to look at the big picture before zooming into the details. It's not for everyone, for sure. And I think a lot of different styles can be and have been successful. But for me, I certainly approach it, I think, in a somewhat different way than many other people. And how did you end up in science? Because, yeah, obviously you had the choice to go into arts to make this a profession or go into science and now in biotech. How did this happen? Yeah, again, I think my parents, my mom and my dad were a big influence on this. When I was in university, I considered for quite a while about going into graphic design or maybe even creative writing. But I think at the time, both I and my parents really came to the conclusion that a more practical <laughs> sort of career choice would be a smart decision to make. I do love science, and science is really a big part of who I am as well. And so it wasn't a difficult decision to make. And ultimately, I ended up with a degree in biology from Carnegie Mellon University and went straight to my PhD from there and really haven't regretted that decision at all. Yeah, that's exciting. And I can totally relate to that, Gene, because I have both sides too. I'm an artist as well. I love music. I know that about you, David. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. And I do love science a lot. So now moving into the scientific part, Gene, let's talk about CMC development and manufacturing of biologics, the area we have worked in for a long time. So what are the key challenges that biotech scientists often face? when developing a process, then going into manufacturing? I think the way I will answer this question is really based on my experiences later in my career. I think oftentimes the CMC development happens too quickly, let's say, without all the information available necessary to the CMC developer about what exactly is the sort of intent and purpose of the drug itself. So Before we have a full knowledge of, let's say, the target product profile or TPP is or will ultimately become, CMC development gets going. Why? Because CMC development is often on the critical path. I think you and I know this. And CMC development takes a long time. And so a way to de-risk, let's say, the readiness of having a CMC package ready to go to file your IND to get into the clinics is to start early perhaps before the full picture of what your drug is intended to do becomes evident and clear to the people who are developing that drug. And so what are the consequences of that? I think for platform products, products which fit the platform process well, maybe it's not such a big risk. You'll start plugging your molecule into the platform process, try to develop the most productive cell line, etc. And that's something that we as CMC scientists and developers all sort of aspire to anyway. But I think what is less clear then is how much of the drug will you need to make to satisfy your phase one requirements? How much of the drug will you need to satisfy your phase three or commercial requirements? What does that process need to look like? What are the cost of goods that'll make your program competitive and successful? What is the formulation of your drug going to be? Are you planning to administer it as an IV or as a subcutaneous administration? These sorts of information and bits of information, I think, are really critical to have a good understanding of at the beginning, before you've really invested a lot of time and effort into developing your drug. And 
my experience has been that we often don't have that full picture at the beginning when CMC development is starting. So when would then be a good time to start the CMC development, Gene? I think it's always a good idea to have conversations, discussions with as broad of a team within the company, within your organization as possible. So really CMC shouldn't be working in a silo, but rather within the context of the functional areas, the therapeutic areas, but also your DMPK scientists, your pharmacologists, your clinical operations people. You try to bring in as many bits of information as possible so that from the beginning, what it is exactly that you're trying to build. I think, and maybe we'll get to this topic a little bit later in this conversation, David, platforms are great, but they can be a little bit of a crutch as well. I think we may have become a little bit over-reliant on how well platforms work. I think it does behoove us to take a step back and take a little bit of a breath and talk to people to try to understand why it is that we're developing this drug in the first place and what we hope to achieve with this drug. Yeah, I love that, Gene. It's so important to know why we are doing things and also what is the end goal. Where are we going to? It's so important. You mentioned the P word, so platform, and let's talk about platform for a while because platforms can facilitate the rapid progression of a project to IND because of several reasons requiring minimal investment in process development, for instance, until the proof of concept. So why is that important to use a platform process? Yeah, I think if we take a corporate view of, of platform process, it's really to enable shots on goal. So drug development is hard. We all know that. And most drugs which enter into development will fail. I think that's just sort of a fact of the business. And one way to minimize the risk or minimize the loss on the investments that you're making in drug discovery and development is to have multiple shots on goal. That is, many candidates into the clinic, either candidates which are hitting the same target or the same therapeutic area or maybe a broader display of trying to get many drugs into the clinic, hitting multiple targets, multiple indications. And really the only way you can do that is to have a fast and cost-efficient way of getting drugs into the clinic. Now, I think in the field of biologics, we're extraordinarily lucky that monoclonal antibodies become the platform molecule of choice. MABs really fit the bill quite well. They're easy to discover. They're easy to manipulate and engineer to bind to really any target you can imagine that's expressed on the cell surface or in circulation. We know that, of course, in the body, in the immune system, antibodies have evolved naturally through their sort of combinant design to bind to, I think, theoretically, tens of millions, if not more, unique targets. And so from a drug discovery perspective, MABs are a wonderful gift. And they also evolve to express really well in B cells and plasma cells. And for this reason, I think as a drug discovery and drug development tool, it really fits in well with the concept of developing a platform process. And then I think naturally as biotech companies and pharma companies adopted MAPS and develop these platforms, it now became very easy for companies in the industry to compare how their platforms were working against other P 
people's platforms. And then it becomes, of course, a little bit of a competition, a little bit of a race for good business reasons, right? You want to be able to produce your drug effectively and efficiently to reduce both the time it takes to get your drug into the clinic and the cost it takes. Now, that's a very circular way of answering your question, David. Why are platforms important? Yeah, because now are very easy to implement and it's very easy to make a monoclonal antibody to hit a number of different targets. I think companies can make the decision to why not try a lot of different possible candidates to go into the clinic, shots on goal. And that's really only possible by using a platform approach. Yeah, platforms absolutely make sense for several reasons and explained it well. Now, what I want to focus on is the industry is witnessing a lot of changes. We are moving away from maps. We have a lot of new modalities. We have FC fusion proteins, bispecifics, T-cell engagers, noble scaffold, and more and more and more things are coming. And also there is a sense of urgency because a lot more companies are running after the same targets. So to what extent does the platform approach still make sense today or how should we adapt this approach? I think, fortunately, a lot of these new modalities that you mentioned are already sort of keeping platform approaches in mind in some way. So FC fusion proteins, for example, the FC part will bind to protein A and so fits into a purification platform quite well, at least the sort of capture step. And I think, by and large, the default starting point for expressing such molecules will still be Cho cells in the sort of favorite cell culture media and upstream process of choice. Now, that may not work for your favorite molecule, but it's at least a good starting point and a starting point that has a lot of experience and sort of industry backing behind it. So I think it's really a damn good starting point. But I think there are other tools that biotech scientists can use. And I think it starts with a sort of developability assessment. So if you have a good platform in place already, or if you're a small biotech, you're working with a CDMO and they have a platform that you understand, you can try to see whether your design fits into that platform well. And if it doesn't, and if you have the opportunity to re-engineer your molecule or test different designs, then you have an opportunity to test those in a developability assessment to see which ones work best in the platform that you ultimately want to use for manufacturing. So I think there are tools at our disposal to use existing platforms to develop and manufacture your drug now. That being said, of course, not all molecules will fit the platform. And certainly when you start straying from classical antibody-like molecule, for example, if you're talking about mRNA therapies or cell and gene therapies, then platform rules don't apply anymore. Nevertheless, I think a lot of the thinking around process design and manufacturing still have percolated into these areas as well. So I think the industry as a whole benefits from and has benefited from the 20 years or so of development of platform processes. Yeah, before moving into the developability assessment, I want to ask you another question, Gene. How can we leverage certain new technologies to overcome these challenges linked to the greater complexity of molecules or instability or fragmentation or aggregation and a lot more challenges? <laughs> 
Maybe an easy answer to that is to apply sort of existing technologies earlier and earlier. So in essence, applying the technologies that you're using in process development labs into your developability assessment. Now, in some ways, those tools might need to be adapted for these early evaluations. Some miniaturization or scale-down versions of these tools may be necessary when you're talking about screening multiple candidates in a late discovery lab. So that's one approach. But perhaps the more interesting and forward-thinking idea is how will something like AI assist in bringing these complex modalities forward into development? And here, I am super excited about the possibilities that AI might bring. I think already we're seeing programs like AlphaFold from DeepMind, which can accurately predict the 3D structure of really any protein out there. And I think that is a wonderful tool. It's just the beginning, for sure. But as you're designing sort of these new Frankenstein structures, putting together pieces of interesting molecules together to build a candidate drug, algorithms such as AlphaFold or AI-assisted technologies can help us to determine whether or not a structure is stable, can fold in a manner that will remain stable in solution. With enough information and with enough, let's say, machine learning as well, I think we will come to a point where we can also be able to predict in silico all those aspects of developability that we need to do by hand at the moment. Hey, smart biotech scientists. This is it for part one of our conversation with Gene Lee, who is the CTO of Ultrabio, a biotech company based in the Bay Area. In part two... Gene is going to explain why you should do a developability assessment and how you're going to do that. What are the specific questions you want to answer? So I'll see you on Thursday in part two. All right, smart scientists. That's all for today on the Smart Biotech Scientist podcast. Thank you for tuning in and joining us on your journey to bioprocess mastery. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, we can empower more scientists like you. For additional bioprocessing tips, visit us at smartbiotechscientist.com. Stay tuned for more inspiring biotech insights in our next episode. Until then, let's continue to smarten up biotech.